Amen. I invite you to, uh, as you sit, to open your Bibles up to 2 Corinthians 8, where our scripture reading was. We'll be camped out there today. Just a quick word to the kiddos that are in here with us. Um, I want to echo what Pastor Jason said, that uh, we're glad you're in here with us, and we believe that God wants to speak to you as well. So um, I'd encourage you, you received a little few coloring sheets when you came in. I encourage you, encourage you to uh, you fill those out if you'd like, or draw something that we're going to be talking about, which I would love to see after the service. Um, I remember as a young kid uh, going to church... Um, just right there next to my mom, my dad was preaching. I did a few uh, bad things to test um, my father's patience during service. He was quick to call me out. Uh, one time, actually, Paul service took me out to a different room, spanked me, and then he came back in and finished his sermon. Um, I deserved it for sure. As you open up to uh, 2 Corinthians 8, just a quick reminder, uh, last week we started a new series of messages uh, that we're calling Foundations, um, really focused on the church, where we are, where we're going, what the essential, the essential um, elements or marks of a healthy church really are, examining the purpose of the church. And we started last week with this uh, Kind of in Ephesians 3, what Paul says, that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God may be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. So the local church, the gathered uh, people of God, should be the visible picture of the heart of God to the watching world. So much so that if someone wants to investigate who the God of the Bible is, we should be able to point to the local church, the bride of Christ. However, as we even mentioned last week, there's been some mission creep where I think we've missed the mark that a lot of the image of God is not reflected in the church. And so we want to do some mid-course corrections as a church, a local church, individually in our own lives. We talked about last week what it means to be an abiding church, not a performing church. No posing, no caricatures, but a genuine faith community who inhales the love of God and exhales obedience. And really everything we talk about in this series will kind of anchor to that one point as we abide with Christ and we're reminded of our identity, right? That we will live out that identity, exhale into obedience. And so today I want to look at the topic of generosity And I know some of you may have brought your friends for the first time today, and you're thinking, man, anything but money. Please don't talk about money. Well, you can come back next week if it's your first time. Jason will not be talking about money. Um, I really feel like this is, uh, when you read this Acts 2 definition of the early church, you just see this radical shift in priority specifically focused on generosity. The gathered people of God always should reflect this idea of radical generosity. What does that look like? How can we honor God more in our generosity? Scripture ultimately tells us that this is a heart issue. When our hearts are changed, everything changes. Think about this. Maybe for those of you who have uh, newborns, Newborns require a lot of work. Most of you are sleep deprived. We can tell you have newborns by the dark circles under your eyes, right? Lots of lost sleep and money and time and energy go into raising a newborn. And when your kid starts screaming at three o'clock in the morning and maybe you're 
heart um, is better than mine. But when mine would do that, I would just be so frustrated at this little bundle of joy for waking me up. Can't you sleep for more than three hours at a time? And that frustration would begin to build until I picked the little boy up or little girl up and my heart would melt. Because when your heart is changed, everything changes. When your heart is changed and when you're changed on a heart level, it changes your perspective, it changes your priorities, it changes everything. And there's something so powerful about money that it grabs at our hearts. Scripture says, oftentimes, what we do with our money reveals where our treasure is, where our heart is. So money is, or our treasure is a great gauge for us because it The human heart can be so deceptive. Scriptures give us several different tests that we can use for our hearts to see if we've really been changed or are being changed by the power of the gospel. One of those James mentions is what do we do when life gets hard? This is James' test. He says you have a false faith if you don't persevere through trial. James 1.12, blesses the man who remains steadfast under trial, it says. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life. The test that Jesus often used was money. He talked about it a lot. Go read through the Gospel of Luke in your quiet times this next uh, couple of weeks and you'll see about every other chapter Jesus is coming back to this idea of money. One of those, remember the parable of the rich young ruler. It wasn't a problem that the guy had a lot of stuff. The problem was that the stuff had him. I mean, when you look at this passage, who wouldn't trade all the stuff for eternal life with King Jesus? That guy. He wouldn't, and many of us won't. Do you see how it reveals your heart? But with a changed heart comes a changed life. And when we look at the first Christians in Scripture, we see that their lives were marked with radical generosity, so much so that after the birth of the church and the coming of the Holy Spirit with power, The dispersion of the church, you see people who used to be enemies now being on the same team. People who used to hate each other now liquidating their assets, their 401ks or whatever they had at that time. Right? To share money with people they just met. We see them literally sacrificing greatly to live lives of radical generosity. I think one of the greatest pictures of this in the early church is found in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. This was the passage that Kaylee read. Let me read it again for us, 2 Corinthians 8. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty has overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. A wealth of generosity. Let me give you a little bit of context here. Acts 16, Paul gets a vision of a man in Macedonia begging him to come and bring the gospel there. And in an act of God's grace, Paul changes his plan of heading east, makes a 180-degree turn, and instead heads west. The gospel would continue to travel westward, eventually all the way across Europe and even to America, partially because of this decision of God moving in the heart of Paul. So Paul goes to Macedonia and plants some churches, namely Philippi and Thessalonica. That's where we get those letters from, his letters to them. We see here and in 1 Thessalonians that those churches were under heavy persecution, So you see this church in Macedonia, mostly rural. They're under heavy persecution. They're barely making it, so to speak. And then there's this famine in Jerusalem. 
So Paul begins to take up an offering of all these young churches that he's planted, namely focused on the Corinthian church. Corinth would have been the New York City of, of, of the day, a very wealthy church. He's taking up offering from all these little churches so that he can send that offering to Jerusalem that can help these young Christians right through this, uh, through this famine. And so when Paul first, you know, introduces this idea to the Macedonian church, I believe, and even from the text, we kind of see that he's not expecting anything from them. They themselves are under heavy persecution. They themselves are, are barely making it. These people probably don't have anything to give, he's thinking. Or maybe he's thinking, I'm going to tell them about the need, but I don't expect anything out of them. Maybe he would expect them to say, as some of us say, that's a great need, Paul. We'll be praying for you as someone else steps up to the plate. But that's not what happened. Paul says, and it gives us, much to his surprise, says in verse 4, that they came begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of these saints. And that kind of leads me to this first idea of generosity, is that generosity is an expression of the heart. It's a result of God's grace. It really speaks to their motivation and giving. Look at the text again with me. In verse 8, he says, I say this not, to, not as a command, but to prove the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. Paul says, I don't want to command generosity. He says on in verse 11, so that your eager willingness would be shown. In chapter 9 and verse 7, he says that we should give not reluctantly or under compulsion. What's the point? He keeps saying and reminding us again and again that generosity is an expression of a changed heart. You should have so much joy in giving. And here's this word again. It showed up last week as well. When we abide with Christ, when we inhale, right, the love of God, that we exhale obedience, and it always equals joy. This is a word, as I've just been studying this week, as I've been reading through the book of Acts, it's a, it's a word that comes up over and over and over. A word that comes up in very difficult times when something happens that we expect God to do. And when we walk through extreme difficulty, there's this underlying confidence in the people of God, this idea of joy. And this is what Paul is mentioning here. There's joy, right, really on both sides of those who gave the offering, took up this offering in Macedonia, the ones that it's going to in Jerusalem. All of them result in joy. God's people should be a people of uncompromising joy. It should just be the nature of what it means to gather with the people of God when we get together with God's people, whether we're walking through heavy times or things not so heavy. There should be this attitude or this spirit of joy. I saw this last week. Some of us in my community group, we gathered together at um, the house of, uh, of Noah Schultz. You might know Noah, his family. They've been going to church here for a couple years, and Noah just got word that he had received, uh, he got cancer again for the second time. And this little boy has just got so much faith that God's going to take care of it. And about 10 of us gathered to pray over him and his family as they are about to leave and head to uh, what they just don't know what. They're chemo for several months, and it's, it's really a crazy thing. But I walked away, got in my car, started driving home, weeping as I drive. Because God's word and his faithfulness is so true to us. The joy in that home was so evident in the midst of this bleak outlook. And that is what supernaturally happens in the people of God. We should be people of uncompromising joy all the time. 
It shouldn't have to be manufactured. It comes when we abide with Jesus and we remember our identity in him and we walk in obedience. The result is always joy. And here we see this church. Joy. Joyful at all times. So full of joy. It was joy, Paul says, that was their motivation for giving. Even cheerfully giving. So full of joy. Look at it, it says it there in verse 2. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their parts. The Macedonians saw generous giving as this privilege, not a problem. It was a delight to them. It was a blessing to them, not a burden. It was a thrill for them to be a part of what God was doing, meeting the needs of these other brothers and sisters that they had never met and would likely never meet. So how do we as a church get to the point where generosity is one of the overflows of our hearts? Where it can be a privilege to us. Well, I think when we see this young church, we see a few things. First, it was a priority for them. Right after this astonishing statement about this plea from the Macedonians that they wanted to be a part of this offering, Paul explains that they didn't do what he expected. Look at verse 3. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this Not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. To us, the first is the key word here. They didn't look at themselves. They didn't look at their situation. They didn't look at all their circumstances. They looked at their master and said, God, here we are. You've been so good to us to save us and give us life. If you want to do a mighty work in us and through us, then we're wide open to that. We simply give you all that we are. And all that we have, and we trust you to do whatever is pleasing in your sight. It says that they looked first to the Lord. Do you see the gospel in this? It's written all over. Do you see this weird math? I put this up here as it describes this severe test of affliction plus extreme poverty somehow equaled the abundance of joy and radical generosity. Only God can do that. If you walked in here this morning... Walking in the similar path as this small church, Macedonia, under a severe test of affliction. As well, you're walking through extreme poverty. Do you think the natural overflow of your life would be an abundance of joy and radical generosity? Again, back to last week, inhaling the love of God, our identity is being formed, resulting in joyful obedience. Because we're loved by Jesus, because God has so generously given his son to us to be our savior, how could we not become generous people as well? So how do we create this heart of generosity? Again, looking at the text, first was their priority. They looked first to the Lord and secondly, through prayer. You see this as you read through, and this is great if you have time. We don't have time today to read through all of 2 Corinthians chapter 8 and chapter 9, and we'll look at snippets of both. But when you are earnestly seeking God's heart, there will be times when he puts resources into your hands, and you just don't know what to do with it. And as you pray, God can direct you to where we should give that money. We see this all over the Bible. In the next chapter, Paul talks about we should give what's being laid upon our heart This is a practice that Ashley and I started doing when we got married. 
of what we should do with the extra money over and above our tithe when God would bless us or we would get money back on taxes or this unexpected gift might come in. We would begin to get to pray, God, what, what, what do you want us to do with this? And every year he has shown us again and again and he is so good to lead us to the people who need it. And we receive a blessing and they receive a blessing and ultimately all glory goes to God because of that. Here's the second point from the text. First is that generosity is expression of a heart. Second is that generosity brings God's provision. I'm fascinated by verse 3. I've literally read it a hundred times in the past week. We're told in verse 3 that the Macedonians gave as much as they were able. That's pretty easy for us to understand. It's the next phrase that doesn't make any real sense. They gave beyond their ability. How does, that, how, does that, how does that even make sense? How do you give beyond, they didn't have credit cards in their account? What does it mean that they gave beyond their ability? They gave some of the first fruits of their offering, certainly. They gave beyond knowing that they might not be able to pay the bills at the end of the month. They gave beyond their ability, but not beyond God's ability. If you look at giving as simply a sharing resources, then you miss the big picture of what God's trying to do. Generosity happens when God allows us to be the giver of his resources, to be his hands extended, to be his arms outstretched. This was the whole story of Jesus feeding the 5,000 with a filet of fish Happy Meal, right? Generosity is when God is doing this and Jesus is showing them this picture. He takes this little Happy Meal and then at the, he feeds 5,000 plus people and at the end they have 12 baskets left over. Again, that makes no mathematical sense. But that's how the kingdom of God works. Kingdom economics is at work there, and it's at work in our finances. Now look across the page to 2 Corinthians chapter 9. And let's look at how this plays out a little further. He says in verse 6, the point is this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful or a joyful giver. And God is able to make, this is another phenomenal verse, you should underline this, all grace abound to you, so that having all efficiency in all things and all times, you may abound in every or all good works. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. 2 Corinthians 9 shows us the path to real financial security. It's inviting God to be Lord over our finances, learning to give and to trust him to provide. When you become this kind of giver, you don't ever have to worry about running dry because God loves to provide those who place their faith in him. You know, being generous really is about faith. It's what it really is. One of my favorite stories of this in the Old Testament is 1 Kings 17. And I'm not going to read it. I'm just going to kind of paraphrase it for you. Maybe you could read it this week. Go back in your uh, time with God. But 1 Kings 17, Elijah is traveling and God sends him to this certain city. And he said, when you get there, I want you to go find a widow. 
he gets there. The story unravels a little bit for us that there's a widow and her son and there's an extreme famine in the land. Extreme famine, so much so that they have just a little oil and they've got just a little flour. They've got just enough for them both to have their last meal. And that's what she assumes. We're going to have one more meal and then we're all just going to die. Now, the Bible is not one to uh, exaggerate things, that that is literally her thought. Can you imagine that this is where they're at? Can you imagine that kind of place? We've always lived in a country of uh, affluence, so maybe we've never even been to this place. But this is what she has resolved in her heart. We've got just enough uh, of money. We've got just enough resources that we're going to have one more meal, and then me and my son are going to starve to death. So this is the situation Elijah's walking into, and he gets there, and he sees her gathering sticks. She's about to make this last meal, and he says to the lady, hey, uh, God has sent me here. And he says, I'm supposed to stay at your house, and I'm I'm really hungry. If you could go give me some water, and if you could bring me just a little something to eat. And this is when she says, well, you know... You know, funny you say that. You can have the house because we're about to die. Um, we, got, we got just a little bit left. I mean, we've got, you know, we're down to the last Lunchable, basically. We just, we just got a little bit. We're going to eat this, and then we're going to die. And can you imagine the boldness of Elijah saying, well, that's fine. You just go ahead and go make me a cake anyway, and then God is going to provide. Put yourself in that lady's shoes, the prophet of Elijah sitting there, and, and you know that this is your last meal. And certainly she's thinking to herself, I wonder if I can trust God here. This is it. This is the last thing we got. Trying to be a good mom. Things hadn't worked out like maybe I had hoped to. Not only is she a widow, but she's living through this extreme famine. If, if you've ever seen your son suffer or your, or your daughter suffer, your kid suffer, it's the most excruciating thing as a parent. And this is, the, this is what they're walking in. And surely she's asking herself what we've asked ourselves, even in this room, can we really trust God to provide on the other side of this step of obedience? Can we really, can we really trust him? Should we hedge our bets? Should we... Should we, should we Surely God is not asking me to give this much money. Surely God is not tapping me on the shoulder and asking me to to give of my resources and my time and my home in this kind of way. And she's asking this question, can I really trust God? The passage goes on to say that she did. It says in verse 15 of 1 Kings 17, it's not on the screen. And she went and did as Elijah said, and she and her household ate for many days. The jar of flour was not spent, neither did the jug of oil become empty according to the word of the Lord that he spoke through Elijah. That God came through, and he came through again, and he came through again. What, what, is, this, what is this story even here for? Because it's trying to explain the character of God to us. That God loves to provide for those who place their trust in him again and again and again and again. And he's not looking for the most, uh, the most money He's not even dazzled with the biggest gifts. As a matter of fact, the New Testament picture of this is the widow's might. Of Jesus and his disciples standing there watching people put money into the treasury. And this widow comes through and puts two pennies in. And he looks at his guys and he says, disciples, did you see what just happened there? My dad loves it when people give with a heart of faith. It is not about the money. It is about having faith in God and trusting him on the other side of obedience. What does that step look like for you even this morning as God is moving in your hearts? I grew up, my parents teaching me this. They sacrificed crazy amounts to plant churches in South Louisiana without really a sending agency. 
again and again, I have too many stories to tell you, but we would do this as a family, that we, when we needed something, we would come together and we would pray. I've told this story before. I was part of some kind of uh, art and uh, science expo as my class was. Uh, I must have been in third or fourth grade. And uh, we go up, and the event's a little longer than we thought. And we used all the money that Dad had to buy us lunch there. And uh, then we got to stay for the afternoon. I think one of us had kind of made the, the qualifying rounds. It was this competition. And maybe they thought, there's no way we're going to make uh, the championship. So somehow we made it there, and we're sitting in the car waiting, I guess, you know, the next evaluation or whatever we're doing. And we started talking about supper. And we were several hours from home. We started talking about going to Ryan's, the Sizzler. Y'all ever heard of the Sizzler, right? Yeah, okay, yeah. We, we loved that as uh, kids. We could go and get the, on the kids' menu, we could get a steak. It was phenomenal. So Leighton and I were like, yeah, let's go to the Sizzler. Dad checks us while well, we don't have any money. So we're talking about this. What do you mean we don't, we don't have any money? We don't have, we have, we're just going to have to drive straight home. And so Dad, leads, we're in a, a blue Colt Vista. I remember that little hatchback. I mean, just the ugliest car you've ever seen. We're praying that God would provide. We finished the prayer. No kidding. I look up and there's a $20 bill floating down the stream. This, this is the most, it's the first time anything like this happened to me. Like even thinking about it, I just get so much joy to think that God just delights in providing those people that trust. There's a $20 bill floating down the stream that's like coming right by our car. There had been this massive rainstorm. I picked up the $20. We went to Sizzler and we all glorified God because of that, right? Um, I could tell you, literally, I could tell you dozens of stories. I had always heard about those things. Those things had never happened to me. I could tell you in the life of this church how time and time again when we needed something, we needed someone, we needed some resource, we needed, we needed money, that God has always provided, always, anytime we needed him, that we would pray and we might have to sacrifice a little bit. There's been a few times where we had to go into the salaries and adjust the salaries downward just so we, we could be good stewards here, but God has always provided and I think somehow in this health and wealth prosperity gospel that's been preached by some, we get a little jaded in even claiming this promise that God is going to meet your supply. He's going to supply your needs, right, according to his riches and glory. And we can trust him with that, that he is going to show up, that he is going to provide. And I learned that as a little kid, and it has been foundational to my life as an adult that God always comes through. This is what Paul is trying to tell this church at Corinth. Corinth, I want you to know, I know you've got affluence and I know you've got money, but let's just look at this example of this little country church, Macedonia, under this severe poverty, under this extreme affliction. And they counted it such a joy and a privilege to participate by giving generously. God delights in those who give from a generous heart of faith. There are really three ways that we can operate in this arena of generosity. We can give below our ability. A lot of people do that. We can give equal to our ability. Or we can give above our ability. And that's possible because of God's grace and his generosity to us when we obediently open our hearts and our hands to others on his behalf. Here's really the final point from the text is that generous giving results in God's glory. It results in God's glory. We see this in verse 11 of chapter 9. 
You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Produce thanksgiving to God. The the point is to glorify God through our generosity. Generous giving certainly brings blessing to others. It can help them in a time of need. We've seen that. It can remind them of the care and compassion of a loving God. We can be generous not only with our money, but with our time and our talents and our energy and our attention and our influence and our words. Some of us are quick to write a check, but very reluctant to open up our home. Some of us are quick to show up and serve at the hub, but very reluctant for us to give chunks of our time to people with desperate need. And here's what the passage is saying, that my people, God says, will be a generous people, that they will have open hands and open hearts, and they will listen for the prompting of God to speak to us, and they will respond in obedience, which will always result in joy, and it will result in bringing God glory. All of the resources in our hands, these I know we feel like we've earned them by our hard work and hard effort. But who gave us a mind to think correctly or a body to perform in such a way? Who gave us the discipline to work hard? All of the things that are in our lives come from God. We are owners of nothing and stewards of everything. Ultimately, we don't give to bless others or necessarily to meet a need. We give to glorify God. In chapter 9, verse 12 and 13, we see that God is glorified when we give generously. Look at verse 12. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, it is doing that, but more than that, but it's also overflowing many thanksgivings to God by their approval of this service. They will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution to them and for all the others. Look at how God gets glory here in this passage. He gets glory through their thankfulness after they receive the gift. God gets glory through your obedience with the money that he's entrusted to you. God gets glory when you give with the right motives. Verse 13, our motive should be the gospel. And God is glorified through the prayers from both you and from them. If we're honest in this room, most of us are not generous because we worry what would happen in the future if we give to God rather than build our own financial security. And what we need this morning is a change in perspective. What we need is a heart change. We need to see ourselves as farmers. Farmers know that the only way to secure their future is to sow as much seed as they possibly can. Hoarding the seed will not accomplish much for them. Our money, our resources is the seed that God has given us to grow a harvest for his kingdom. And he promises here in 2 Corinthians 9 that he will multiply our seed and increase the harvest of our generosity. If only we will be faithful to sow and to trust him. Can I remind you this morning that you can trust God? You really can trust him. I know it's our nature, again, to hedge our bets, to grow our savings as much as we can. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't save. Proverbs says you should. But we should live a life with open hearts and open hands, listening to the prompting of the Holy Spirit and responding in obedience. If God can be trusted with our eternal salvation, can he be trusted with our future financial security? If he can be trusted to deal with our sin, can't we trust him with our bank accounts? We should give without fear, trusting God who has promised to meet every need. So we ask the question, so what now? 
What do we do from here? How do we live a life as a church? How do we live this out radical generosity? How do we live it individually? Well, we've got some choices to make. And I know whenever we talk about money at church, people, don't, people always want to say, well, what about the tithe? But notice that Paul doesn't even mention the tithe here. The tithe was an Old Testament commandment that the people of Israel would give first, their first, 10% of their first fruits of their income to the temple ministry that ultimately took care of the priests and what was necessary to fulfill the mission of the temple of animals and sacrifices. But why doesn't Paul mention that at all? Perfect time, we're talking about giving, we're talking about money. Certainly we should talk about tithe here, but Paul doesn't mention it because the tithe is really just a starting place. And Paul knows if the gospel has radically changed your heart, then 10% is never going to be enough because God is going to be moving you to be generous in every area of your life. The tithe is just a starting place. The New Testament principle is one of sacrifice. And again, please do not feel that this feels a bit self-serving to preach messages like this. I preach this message because Jesus talks so much about it. Because we live in the South and materialism has its grips on our hearts. And because Paul tells Timothy again and again in his letters to him, teach your people to be generous people. The New Testament principle is one of sacrifice. Again, Paul's not commanding us to do anything here, he says. But I want you to see the illustration of the Macedonian church who gave cheerfully with joy above their ability. And God did some supernatural things through their obedience. This topic of generosity really brings up this question of do we really trust God or not? Here's the two questions I have for us. Do we want to live superficial or supernatural lives? If we give the leftovers to God, then we live superficial spiritual lives. Many of us in here have settled for superficial and we could be living supernatural lives, seeing God do some incredible things through us. However, if we respond in faith to what God is doing in our hearts, and we begin to give generously, we see supernatural things begin to happen as we place our faith and trust in God. And the second question is this, immediate or ultimate? Immediate gratification comes when we keep God's money and we use it on us and our stuff and our comfort. It's the attitude of the owner. It's my money and my life. And I'm not saying that God hasn't entrusted you to have nice things. I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying the things we have shouldn't have us. Ultimate satisfaction comes when we live with open hands. It's the attitude of the faithful steward. We look back at chapter 9, 2 Corinthians 9, the promises of God for those who give generously. I wanted to put these on the screen so you could see them. Sometimes when we read them, you might pass over them. In verse 6, his promise is that we'll reap bountifully. In verse 8, that we'll be sufficient in all things, abounding in all good works. In verse 10, that our seed will be multiplied and a harvest of righteousness would come. In verse 11, that we'll be enriched in every way. In verse 12, that he will meet our needs, that we will meet needs. In verse 13, that we will glorify God. At the end of 13, that you will be a living statement of the gospel to the watching world. If you want to grow a heart of generosity, one of the smartest things you could do is begin to sow more into the kingdom of God. And as you give, it will be returned back to you. It's not often returned in the same way that it was sown. Don't miss that. It's not that if you give $100, God's giving you back $1,000 floating down the stream. That's not the case. 
If he does, show me where that stream is. I'll come camp next, next to it beside you. A farmer doesn't sow seed to get more seed. A farmer sows seed so that he will get fruit. And here's the key here. You don't, you don't give generously so that God will give you more money back or time back. What you get back is God's favor on your life. You sow generously, and as a result, God's favor is on you. Imagine what it would look like in our faith family if we became more involved in radical generosity. Imagine the homeless people that would find homes and find the gospel through the hub. Imagine the number of church, churches we could plant that we could start. Imagine the work over in Thailand that's happening with, the, <clears throat> with our pal people and the missionaries there. Imagine what would happen. If we just began not just to give below our ability or even equal to our ability, but to open our hearts and our hands and say, God, wherever you lead, imagine not living with the claws of materialism in our hearts, free to give, free to love, free to serve. We know who we are and whose we are and who we've been sent to. And God is asking us to trust him. And I think communion, we're going to celebrate communion, observe communion here in just a moment. And this is just such a great picture of this to us, the generosity of God to us, and the reminder for our fickle hearts that God is going to come through. Not only did God promise in Genesis that he was going to send the promised seed, not only did nearly every prophet talk about it, not only are there all the messianic psalms that there's one day coming, but Jesus really did come. And this is what we remember when we participate in communion. That we serve a generous God who loves us, who bankrupted heaven for us, and who is one day coming again. I'm going to pray for us. Again, as a pastor, I don't like preaching sermons like this. I feel like this is what God has really placed on my heart, though. And I pray God begins to move in your own heart. Give you just a few minutes just to pray where you're at. Maybe you would ask God to speak clearly about this next step that he's asking you to take. Maybe your step is to begin to start tithing. It's to begin to invest in some nonprofits that are doing great kingdom work in our city. Maybe it's to open your home, your schedule. Open up your hands. Father, we thank you for um, your word to us, that you love us, that you give to us. Grace upon grace, you've overwhelmed us with your mercy. I pray today that we, your people, would be a picture of your heart to the watching world. As we abide with you, as we experience your power changing us, that we would be generous people in such an incredible way. I pray for the communion that we're about to take, Father, that you would be very present here through the elements, that we remember your great gift of mercy to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Our communion servers are here. You come when you're ready. I'll be in the back if you need to pray with someone.
God Almighty Early in the morning Our song shall rise to Oh 